Hello listeners, Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few announcements for you. We hope you were able to join us last month for the second edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit. It was a great week filled with amazing talks from amazing speakers from all around the world, including early career scientists. Find out more about the winners of the best talks given at the summit by the next generation of GPCR scientists by following us on social media today. Also, you can now watch the talks from the summit on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe today. You will get notified whenever we share new videos, and it is also a great way to support our work. Another great way to support us is by subscribing to the Dr. GPCR newsletter. The upcoming newsletter contains the summit survey. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you'd want us to keep, improve, and how to make Dr. GPCR work for you. Stay tuned for the upcoming Dr. GPCR virtual cafe events. Visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from the Dr. GPCR podcast. And today we have with us Dr. Benjamin Myers. Hi, Ben. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. So glad that uh, we were able to make it on the, on the early Saturday morning. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about uh, your current role and uh, about your story as a scientist. Sure. Um, so I'm uh, currently an assistant professor uh, at the University of Utah School of Medicine in the Department of Oncological Sciences, um, also affiliated with the biochemistry department there. And that's a role that I've been in since, uh, I guess, early 2018, so a little bit more than, than three years now. Um, and my lab is really focused on trying to understand uh, signaling at the membrane and particularly how it influences uh, developmental biology and, and cancer biology. And so we're really focusing a lot on uh, class F uh, GPCRs in particular uh, in sort of the frizzled and, and smoothened subfamily, so sort of the odd uh, members of the GPCR superfamily. And I'll say most of our work on this point has really been on smoothened, which I guess if, if the frizzled, or the, if, the, if class F is an outgroup, I guess smoothened is sort of the outgroup from the outgroup. Um, but a really critical, really fascinating protein and uh, really trying to understand uh, some of the key roles it plays uh, in development and cancer, uh, but focusing on how uh, how it's activated and how it signals downstream to mediate uh, changes in gene expression and they go on to, to dictate uh, cell fate. Um, and so we're thinking a lot about these questions about how smoothened is regulated and also how we can target smoothened uh, in a better way to, uh, to, to help uh, in disease. And so, and then another area that we're interested in um, from our work on smoothened is thinking about uh, GPCRs in the primary cilium, which is this tiny little antenna-shaped structure that a lot of people don't know about, but it's present on all the cells in your body. It's this little cell surface organelle, and it ends up being really critical for a lot of aspects of human health and also sort of a hot spot for GPCR signaling in the cell. And there's a lot of, of mystery surrounding kind of how signaling takes place there, and that's another topic that we're working on. That's fascinating, developmental biology. I remember taking a developmental biology course, I think it was during my master's, and I, I just hated it, to be honest, but I'm <laughs> glad to be talking to you. Hopefully, you'll be able to change my, uh, my, my not-so-good experience during that course, and especially that it wasn't about GPCR, so I'm glad that we're talking about, about GPCRs today. 
Before you uh, got to the University of Utah, where were you before? What led you to where you are today? Yeah, that's a, okay. So maybe I'll, um, I can start, I, can, I guess I can start pretty early. So um, even, I guess, growing up as a, you know, a, as a kid, I was always pretty interested in science. Um, I was really curious about sort of the, the natural world and especially about, I guess, the human body um, and about health. Um, I had some scientists in my family. So my dad uh, uh, is, is a, a patent attorney and he worked a lot on, on biotechnology cases. And so um, he would always be talking about, you know, science and about sort of the uh, you know, things like that uh, at home. And so I kind of, you know, heard a lot about that from him. And uh, my grandfather was a chemical engineer. So he was also, um, you know, very much a scientist. Um, so, you know, neither of them were were sort of academic researchers, but I think science was sort of something that was always, um, always around. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of gravitated, I guess, more and more towards sort of biology and human health um, growing up. And I, I guess I always thought that that was just a really interesting and like a really important topic. Um, and so in college, um, I kind of had this idea that I was going to become a doctor and go to medical school. Um, but I started working in a lab and I was actually working with uh, Stuart Schreiber, who's sort of a, a chemical biology person, um, doing a lot of different types of science kind of at the interface of, of you know, chemistry and biology. And I think the more time that I spent working in his lab, um, you know, the more I really started to feel like, uh, you know, patient care was probably not my calling, but the research and sort of working in, 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 in science, sort of uh, the intellectual challenge of it and just sort of the excitement of making new discoveries that that really was was more my cup of tea. And so um, after that, I, I made up my mind to kind of shelve the, the medical school plans and then I applied to grad school instead. And so um, in grad school, uh, I was at UCSF um, and I was working with uh, David Julius, who uh, some of your listeners may, may know him. He's um, He's someone who, who works a lot on understanding how we sense pain and how we sense temperature, but very much at a molecular level. And so he focuses a, his, his lab focuses a lot on ion channels that are expressed in our sensory neurons that mediate these sensations. So I guess, for example, if you've ever eaten um, some really spicy food and you've you know, found that you have this burning sensation on your tongue because you overdid it, it's because there's a chemical compound in, uh, in chili peppers called capsaicin, which activates an ion channel that's expressed in your sensory neurons that basically opens and uh, depolarizes the neuron. And, and that's the same ion channel actually that also responds to, to hot temperatures. So the reason that capsaicin feels hot is because uh, it's activating the same you know, molecule that, that heat activates. And I, I just thought that was so fascinating. Um, and I mean, not just the idea that there's this sort of immediate connection between um, the natural world and the environment and what, what he was studying, but just the fact that it kind of came down to this sort of really elegant molecular, um, I guess, machine that, that was mediating this. And, and I think it was really in David's lab that I, I really fell in love with, I guess, membrane proteins, um, just as these incredibly kind of dynamic and, um, just, you know, critical proteins that in a, in a lot of ways, I guess, mediate the the they're really what help the cell interact with its outside world right i mean they're they're the things that help cells sense danger and to sense um you know environmental cues and even to light, sense yeah. yeah light absolutely so i really i really fell in love with membrane proteins there and um and and I, and I think the other thing that i loved about being in david's lab was that he you know he i really learned from him um from the people in his group a lot about you know the value of really getting down to sort of a molecular explanation for things and that you know, it's not really enough to just understand what the players in this sort of pain pathway are, but we have to really understand 
how do they work at a at a you know kind of a deep you know biochemical and molecular level to really you know fully understand how how the system works. So that was something that I think um, and, and so in his lab. I was just, I was trying to understand uh, basically how these ion channels that sense hot temperatures, and there's another one that senses cold temperatures that responds to menthol, which is the sort of the soothing ingredient in mint. Yep. So I was just trying to understand um, how they work. And so I was doing a lot of structure function studies, a lot of mutagenesis and a lot of functional mm -hmm. assays, mainly patch clamping and electrophysiology. And yeah, I just, I just really loved it. Um, and then I guess the other thing about his lab um, it was just he he's a, a really bold scientist and i think he was someone that really encouraged the people in his lab to to be bold and also to take risks and it, it was it was just a really fun like lab environment to be in um you know it attracted some really big personalities and people that are kind mm -hmm. of work hard play hard type and so it was always just fun to come into lab because you never really knew what you were going to find uh you know there was a lot of people in the lab that were working on um um, you know, sensory, uh, sensory biology, but in other, you know, non-mammalian organisms. And so, you know, as, as a way to understand more about how they, um, you know, how these systems evolved and, and, you know, how, how they're tuned in different species. And so, you know, you could come into the lab and there might be like a baby alligator in a cage that somebody oh was, was, <laughs> was working on, or like a rattlesnake or a, a star-nosed mole, which is this sort of bizarre creature that lives underground that, that has no ability to to, to see really, but basically it's, it's evolved this very, uh, you know, hyper sort of aware sense of, of touch. Um, so yeah, there's all, all these sort of these crazy animals and, um, you know, people are just having a really good time, um, you know, really focusing intensely on the science, but also just, yeah. you know, taking, um, you know, be, being really, really bold and really creative. Um, so that was a really good experience. And then kind of when I got to the end of my PhD, I was, I kind of had a little bit of a crisis because I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And I still really liked uh, what I was doing and I liked ion channels. And I thought a little bit about, you know, maybe continuing with that in another lab. And, you know, David really encouraged me to kind of branch out and to try to do something a little bit different. I mean, that was something that he had actually done in his career. And it was something that he encouraged a lot of his trainees to do, to sort of switch field because you know you really get a different perspective coming into a new field um from a different yeah. field than if you just sort of stay in the same field and you know i so so i took his advice to heart i didn't really know what i wanted to study and then um i remember this was at, at ucsf they had uh, one of these seminar series where they would have you know really great scientists come in and, and give talks but also talk to graduate students about you know how to be a scientist and things like nice. that and so uh, Christiane Nusslein-Bolhard was one of the speakers, and she um, is a really famous developmental biologist who you know, made just some really, really seminal contributions to how, 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 uh, how organisms develop with these, these amazing you know, screens and fruit flies and, and zebrafish. And so she gave, I remember she, she gave this talk to the students that I was at, and one of the things that she said right away was, you know, if you're looking to do a postdoc, I would advise you to just completely change your field because I did that. And she, it turned out she had actually studied like the biochemistry of DNA replication as a graduate student. And then she just kind of got bored with that and you know, just completely went on to something else. And she, she said, you, you guys should all do that too, because it's really invigorating and you really, you know, really kind of, you got, you kind of get to get to press the reset button. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, kind of, I was kind of naive and I was like, Oh, that worked for her. So, you know, maybe that'll, maybe that'll work for me too. Um, and I started to get really interested in, in development. Um, and, uh, you know, I started to read about development 
And, and I just felt like, you know, first of all, this is such an interesting question. You know, how does an organism develop? I mean, what it really comes down to is, you know, we have to basically build ourselves from nothing, you know, from a single cell into an organ, you know, to a, a human being with all these different types of tissues and organs, and they all have to adopt the right fate and they all have to become the right thing at the right time. Like you have to, you know, and, and if that doesn't work, it's a, it's a disaster, right? And, and there's, there's so many things that have to happen. And, and I just thought, my God, this is such an interesting question. And, and the more that I, I started to read about it, I just realized that we actually don't really have any idea about the signaling that allows this to happen. I mean, we know that there's a couple of these really key, key signaling pathways, but in terms of how they work, you know, it's really, a lot of cases, it's really wide open. And I think this was something that really grabbed me because I knew from, you know, the work I had done as a graduate student, like how, how important it was to really get down to sort of the biochemistry and the molecular mechanism and how that really informed the way that we think about that area of biology. And just, I saw that there was just a lot of potential uh, to do that in development and in, in, in developmental biology. So I started to read more about that. And then I, I pretty quickly triangulated on one specific developmental pathway called the hedgehog pathway. And so it, you know, has this, this funny name um, because it was discovered using fruit fly genetics mainly. Um, but it's this really critical signaling pathway that's basically one of the handful of pathways that is responsible for the development of pretty much every single organ in your body. So all, in, in almost every case, you need hedgehog pathway activity in order to, to pattern those. That those I remember from my uh, developmental biology class. Yeah, yeah. There's a, <laughs> there's a couple of these hedgehog and went and FGF and notch. And, you know, it, it's really kind of amazing that all, you know, there's not so many of them, right? These pathways, and they just get used yeah. over and over again in these creative ways, you know, to, to pattern all of these, these structures in your body. And so in looking at hedgehog, what I realized was that this is a super critical pathway. I mean, I had also heard of it, even though I didn't know much about development at that point, I knew it was really important in embryogenesis. I knew it was really important in stem cell biology and cancer. But, you know, the more that I started to read about it and learn about it, it just really shocked me that some of the most basic aspects of how this pathway works, and people have no idea, or had, had no idea at the time. And it, it wasn't like these were questions that were down in the weeds either. It was really like, what turns the pathway on? Like what transmits the signal, you know, in, in a cell that, that, uh, that, where, where it gets turned on. And I just thought, you know, these, these kinds of wide open questions um, are a really great uh, kind of uh, I guess a, a really great uh, ground for, for doing a postdoc because there's lots of stuff to still figure out. And so um, I did my postdoc with Phil Beachy at, at Stanford, who's sort of one of the experts in the, in the field in, in hedgehog signaling and who had made some really nice contributions in that area. And um, I started to work on some of these questions and, and, and pretty quickly my interest triangulated on smoothened, which again is this class F GPCR and it really is kind of at the heart, it's, it's really at the heart of, of the pathway. I mean, it's a, a, a protein at the membrane that has to be turned on in order to turn hedgehog signaling on. And it has to signal, you know, from the cell surface, you know, downstream into the, to the nucleus. And, you know, nobody really knew how, how any of that stuff worked. And, and I think the other thing that sort of drew me to that in particular was that it just seemed like the little that we knew about how, I guess, hedgehog signaling generally and smooth in particular work, it, it just seemed like it was so weird. You know, it didn't, it didn't follow any of the rules that I had, had learned about um, for other signaling pathways. It seemed to just break all the rules. And so I, I realized that it's a really important thing to work on. 
um, but also that it's going to need um, it's going to definitely need some some time to really crack. Um, so this was something that I started during my postdoc, um, understanding how smoothin is activated in cells, yeah. and that's something that I continued in my independent lab, um, and also have started to work on some other aspects of smoothin biology, and then that's also kind of interestingly brought us full circle and now taking us to some, I guess, back to some more general themes in, in GPCR biology as well. So, um, yeah. Wow. That's that you, you I, I love that you went back to, to being a teenager and, you know, being interested in science. Let's take a step back because sure. I have a couple of questions for every, every stage oh, yeah. of, uh, of your career. Sure. Um, you mentioned that you were always interested in science and then you had, you know, your, your father and your grandfather, um, you know, being science, having that scientific mind. Was there a particular subject that you would have preferred? I mean, I think you mentioned biology, but some, some of my previous guests said astrophysics or, you know, uh, um, something like that. But was it biology for you? Yeah, actually, so my, my, my dad and my, my grandpa, I guess they, they were really more into the chemistry than they were into the biology. I think a lot of what my dad was, ended up doing was sort of pharmaceuticals. And so that definitely touched on the biology. And I think for me, um, I guess the more that I started to learn about the biology, the more I just felt that that was really the, the thing that really, really piqued my curiosity. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess that, that was kind of how I, I guess it was sort of coming in from maybe the chemistry angle, but, but definitely like gravitating more more towards biology, just because I felt like the questions were, were, were things that kind of interested me more. Yeah, I think, I think chem chemistry is fantastic. And every, as, um, as in the series, uh, Breaking Bad, the chemistry must be respected. But if, oh, if yeah. there's no biology yeah. um, associated to it, then, then it becomes this abstract, yeah, yeah, abstract yeah. topic. In some ways, yeah, definitely. It yeah. was so fascinating to hear about the uh, the sensor, the capsaicin response, or that you example that you had, and it actually reminded me of uh, of a documentary I've seen. It was about food and and food things like that. But basically, chickens apparently uh, don't can yeah. eat the red peppers. Yep. The uh, and uh, people give it to chickens so that their eggs, the egg yolk, becomes even more yeah. pronounced red. That's that's but right, they, and that's right, and, and actually, there, there's a there's a reason. So so there's a reason for that, which is that um, basically birds are really good dispersal vehicles for the capsaicin for the for the chili pepper seed, right? And so the this, the, the plan has actually evolved capsaicin mm -hmm. in a way to ward off rodents like rats and squirrels, and I guess us, I mean, mm -hmm. map, you know, human beings too. Yeah. Um, but not birds because birds will help to disperse the seeds. And, 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 and so actually, if you look at the capsaicin receptor from birds, it is not activated by capsaicin, you know, it's, it's activated by heat, um, but it's not activated by capsaicin. And so there, it, it, that was another thing that kind of really captivated me, this idea that like, you know, these, these really fundamental properties can be reflected in, in actually like very, very small, subtle changes in, in the sequence. I mean, that, I guess that's a theme that, It's probably also true in the odorant receptors, for example. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples of that in, in GPCR biology as well, but but definitely something that, that was really, really interesting about that system. I thought, I thought so too. I think it's very interesting that you have the same receptor in humans to detect heat and also the, the capsaicin um, molecule to mm -hmm. signal to the brain that actually the end result is the same. There yeah. is a burning sensation. Exactly, that, exactly. That comes yeah. through it. Yeah. I think it's, it's just... Just fantastic. And then uh, I, the next question I had is, was about, um, actually, it's more of a, of a thought than a question. I loved um, how you got interested into 
the developmental biology and and you're right i mean going from from the fusion of two cells to a full human mm-hmm. it's just a magnificent thing and there are so yeah. many things yeah. happening at the same time mm-hmm. that need to be perfectly orchestrated coordinated and i think it's just we're we're there's so much so many questions that need to be answered but yes the question the question I had for you is, so you mentioned that you got interested in developmental biology, which led you to GPCRs somehow, but what was the first time where you actually heard about GPCRs? Yeah, okay, that, that's, a, that, that's a good point. Because, because um, de- definitely like in, 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 in graduate school, like in, in the Julius lab, even though you know, most of the work going on in the lab was about ion channels, you know, GPCRs were sort of always floating around there for, for various reasons. Um, I mean, one reason was just that it was a sensory biology lab. And so, you know, we're really aware of sort of the odorant receptors, you know, all of those are GPCRs and some of the, the great work in that system. But also these ion channels like the capsaicin receptor, they're actually modulated by GPCR activity. And this is a really critical way that they're sensitized, for example, in response to tissue damage. And so um, there's a, you know, there, there, there's a, a lot of examples of that actually of GPCRs you know, mainly acting through GQ coupled receptors on, on PLC um, to, um, to sensitize these, uh, they're called transient receptor potential channels or trip channels. And so it was one actually really nice um, story that came out of David's lab that was uh, basically right before I got there of uh, GQ coupled GPCR is basically doing this and, you know, really powerfully sensitizing these receptors. Um, but even though it was a GQ coupled pathway, it wasn't through, um, diacylglycerol um, and PKC or IP3, the, the way that a lot of those pathways were. And it turned out that it was through um, PIP2 and it was actually PLC that was cleaving PIP2 to uh, relieve this tonic inhibition of the channel. And I, and I think, I thought that was a really cool idea. And, and, and in part, because I, I had you know, learned a little bit about GPCRs already. And I knew that that was not sort of the typical way that people thought about GQ coupled pathways. And I, I think you know, you, you never really know as a scientist kind of how all these experiences that you have are going to eventually like influence your later work. But I do think that that probably did have some influence on me in terms of thinking that just because, you know, a GPCR pathway is supposed to work a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that it really does work that way. And a lot of times you have to think about whether or not the ways that these proteins communicate with each other are really the way that they that you learned about, or is it potentially something different? So I think that was the first time that I really learned that I, that was probably the the first experience I had learning about GPCRs, but I really started to, to dive into them a lot more um, when I was a postdoc. I think we can get into kind of the reasons for that in a little bit, but basically I, I I sort of recognized um, part of the way through my postdoc that there was this sort of um, the the GPCR field and a lot of the tools and the approaches were going to be really, really useful for understanding the biology around, uh, you know, surrounding smooth end. It's great. Actually, that was, that was going to be my next comment slash question because you and I at first chatted almost face to face at the, uh, at the transatlantic ECI. And we were just talking about the fact that you've, you've really dug deep into the tools used to study GPCR function and applied it to, to smooth and, and to the research that you're doing, but we're going to get to that in a, in, in a couple of minutes. Gotcha, um, yeah. I asked this from to I asked this question to all my my guests. Do you have a favorite GPCR or maybe a favorite ion channel? <laughs> I think my favorite GPCR has to be Smoothend. Um, I have I have to give it to Smoothend. <laughs> um, and part of it, I guess, is that I, I think 
you know, the biology around it, is, it, it has been really, really interesting and, and rewarding to, to work on. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been so cool to try to, 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 to figure out some of these, the, the, these really, you know, basic questions about how smoothened works. But I think, I think part of the reason I have to say smoothened is that, um, I think it's also really taught me a lot of biology. Like I, I, I used to think, you know, maybe kind of naively that I, I had a pretty good understanding of how GPCRs get activated, you know, broadly speaking, and how they signal downstream. And I think Smoothend has basically taught me that I don't understand that at all. And that there's actually a lot more to it than, than I ever realized. And, and so I think it's been kind of a, a humbling and a very educa a very educational experience, I think, to, to, get, to get to work with this receptor. And you made a great a great point when you mentioned that yes we we know so much about GPCRs but at the same time we don't know enough yes and yes. as a scientist not assuming that something is the way it is but instead going at the idea or asking a question in order to explore how things happen for that specific system yeah, yeah. Uh, is is key mm -hmm. to any scientific work definitely yeah definitely so um. I think you're my first guest ever who works on Smoothen. So I think that's probably Smoothen? true. <laughs> Smoothen. Tell us a little bit more. So yes, yeah, Smoothen is this, you know, really, I would say it's really the key, um, the, really the key signaling protein in the hedgehog pathway at the membrane. And so Smoothen um, has to, basically it has, it has sort of two really critical jobs in, in the hedgehog pathway. So it has to be activated somehow. It has to go from being in an inactive, state to an active state, you know, when, 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 when the hedgehog pathway is on, has to be turned on. And once it becomes activated, it has to basically signal across the membrane to initiate sort of a, a you know, a pretty unclear series of events that eventually lead to activation of a transcription factor called glee. And glee is the major transcription factor in the hedgehog pathway. And that's really what's turning target genes on or off to, you know, basically to, to ultimately to determine a a cell's fate. And so, um, yeah, so, the, and, and Smoothen is also, um, you know, overactivated in a number of cancers as well. And so, um, basal cell carcinoma of the skin is actually the most common human cancer. There's about, um, 3 million, um, let's see, there's uh, about, I think it's about 3 million cases every year, um, just in the, in, in the U S and, uh, to make sure I have that number right. But, um, the, it's okay. yeah, um, we, can, we can amend it on the a lot of cases. And uh, it's almost always driven by overactivation of smoothened, either through mutations in smoothened itself or more commonly through uh, mutations in upstream pathway components that lead to sort of excessive activation of smoothened. Um, and then um, medulloblastoma is a very common pediatric brain tumor, which is also the same thing, driven by overactivation of smoothened. And, and, and so smoothened is also a major oncology target. And um, so, um, yeah, really important sort of basic science, also really important for therapeutics. But um, when I started my postdoc, we really had almost no idea about what, you know, how Smoothen got activated or how Smoothen signals downstream. And so maybe I can try to put that into perspective a little bit for some of the listeners. So I think, you know, for, for people that are working on GPCRs, right, I mean, they're all different from one another. But in most cases, you know, if you're thinking about how a GPCR gets activated, usually you're thinking about a ligand. And either the ligand, it could be a peptide or a, or a small molecule or another protein. But generally, you know that there is a ligand. You might know what the ligand is. 
You might not. It might be an orphan gPCR, but you can be pretty sure that it's it's going to be activated by some ligand. Um, and then after it gets activated by a ligand, right, a gPCR is going to engage G proteins or, or in some cases, and, and also arrestins to, to signal downstream. So for smoothened, we actually had no idea when I started what turns smoothened on at all. Is it is it a ligand or is it is it something altogether different? And you know, part of the reason for that is that smoothened is really unusual in the gPCR superfamily because its activity is being regulated by another membrane protein called PASHED. And so PASHED is this 12 transmembrane protein and it blocks smoothened activity. And that's actually what keeps the hedgehog pathway off. And when the hedgehog pathway gets turned on, so in a developing tissue, when hedgehog protein comes along and wants to activate the pathway in a, in a cell, it binds to PASHED and inactivates PASHED. And then that because it's a double negative and it's really easy to get confused. Um, but because there's an inhibiting an inhibitor, that turns smoothened on. And so that process of how patched communicates with smoothened, I mean, nobody knew how it worked. Um, you know, does it involve some kind of a ligand? Is it something altogether different? Um, okay, and then once smoothing gets activated, I, it has to signal downstream to these Gli transcription factors. Um, but it didn't seem to be something that used uh, G proteins. Uh, you know, unlike, you know, pretty much every other you know, GPCR pathway that, that people think about. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's worth emphasizing this maybe for, for, the, for the, the, the podcast, because we really had almost no idea, um, almost like what planet we were on in terms of figuring this out. And, and it was something that I found to be, you know, really challenging for sure, because there's not really a clear sort of concept that you can sort of plug into. It's not like you can just plug and chug and, and you know, have a model that's worked for, for or an idea that's worked for other GPCRs and plug it in here because clearly it doesn't work. But at the same time, it's also a really big thrill because you get the opportunity to work on something that's really fundamentally important. And making a discovery like like this is something that would is really something that, that I thought could be could be pretty impactful for thinking about about development and about cancer. That's so fascinating. I have a quick question though. Um, yeah. What is the topology of, of smoothened compared to your rhodopsin or, you know, regular? Right, right. Uh, yeah, so, so it, it, it is a seven transmembrane protein, and it definitely adopts the, the GPCR fold. And we, we have um, partial structures of smoothened now, and, it, and definitely the membrane domain is, is very clearly in the GPCR superfamily, even if it is part of this outgroup. Um, one of the unusual things about smoothened is that it has a very large extracellular domain. Um, and that extracellular domain is something that's unique to the class F GPCRs. And so just the frizzles and the smoothens have that. Yeah. Um, and in addition, smoothen also has this fairly large intracellular domain that is also unique among GPCRs. And um, as, as far as I'm aware, it does not look at all like any intracellular domain from any other GPCR. Wow, that's that's so great. It's it's funny because every time I talk to to someone or I, I you know go to a talk about GPCRs, I learned not only I learned so much, but then I feel like there is so much to do, and it's so exciting. Yes, to learn to learn about about these these new GPCRs. So you mentioned that actually, you in order to activate smoothened, you needed um, the twelve transmembrane domain protein. That is. It is, is it always co-expressed with smoothened or is it co-localized yeah. or does there, is there a shift to get those two partners together? 
Yeah. So um, they're, they're, but both both passions within are, are generally expressed pretty broadly and at, at pretty low levels, but pretty broadly. And uh, the other the other thing about this this within that's pretty, I guess, interesting but also confusing, is that it uses the primary cilium for signaling. And so smoothened and patched both localized to the primary cilium, this you know tiny little antenna shaped yeah. structure. Um, although you know exactly why they have to do that, what exactly is going on in the cilium. Is, is is really not that clear, um, even now. But uh, they do seem to sort of be co co expressed and co I guess co localized um, in that in that structure. So they do kind of get get close to each other. Although they they don't they don't interact physically. I mean, they don't at least not in sort of conventional you know biochemical mm -hmm. assays. They don't. It's not like a receptor and a co receptor, for example. Okay. So um, yeah, we, we we knew from that. I guess the field knew from that that the the signaling between them was going to be something pretty unusual. Um, didn't, didn't seem to, to, to follow that pattern. That's so interesting. And what are, what other uh, proteins are expressed in the cilium? Yeah. So, so the cilium ends up, be, I mean, all, you can pretty much find all of the, the hedgehog pathway components in the cilium. And so patched and smoothened, of course, in the, as the upstream players in the pathway, um, but also protein kinase A, which we'll probably get into um, in a little bit, um, a major, uh, and, and, and glee itself, the transcription factor actually goes into the cilium. Um, and then eventually comes out to to turn on gene transcription. And so, um, yeah, we'll definitely, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but, um, you know, one of the really critical downstream steps in the pathway involves um, PKA, which phosphorylates glee and and turns it off. And then smoothen has to somehow be able to to prevent that from, from happening. So you, you could see all, all the, the critical hedgehog pathway components in cilia, but also a number of other GPCRs are there. And so, um, it turns out to be this sort of this, this sort of little little zone of GPCR signaling where you can find things like somatostatin receptors, some of the dopamine receptors um, localized there as well. There's some neuropeptide receptors, and so this is probably one of the reasons why, um, if you have these um, mutations that affect the formation of cilia or that affect uh, protein transport into cilia or out of cilia, they have this whole sort of spectrum of really kind of interesting and um, uh, you know, seemingly unrelated uh, human diseases that involve, um, it, you know, uh, metabolism or neuromodulation or vision, you know, and, and so these, these they're, they're called ciliopathies, but they all result from sort of mistakes um, in f formation of, or maintenance of, of cilia. And so um, there's definitely some really interesting biology going on in there and, and, and some really interesting GPCR signaling. But, you know, there's also plenty of GPCRs that don't Use cilia. It's not like it's an obligate place in the cell for GPCR yeah. signaling. So it, you know, this is stuff that's really being like actively researched right now by a lot of labs. Um, you know, what is what is going on in this little antenna that uh, yeah. that it seems to be so important for these pathways to work? It sounds like a like like the little antenna is a very uh, elite club of of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> GPCRs and signaling molecules. And it also yeah. actually, the localization must be so specific because of the function that, that these genes and just proteins um, ha have. And I guess the separation is, the reason for the separation is obvious is because they, it needs to be very specific and you want to make sure that you activate only the correct um, receptors and the correct uh, intracellular signaling pathways, which it's kind of a, you know, I think... <laughs> all the events that happen in the cell are already so mysterious and so well-coordinated and timed. And then you have the cilia, the, you know, the cilia 
that have another compartment. Right, where right. And, and, and another idea there is also that there may be, so, so some of it may be compartmentalization, like you like you're alluding to, like you may want to have things that go on only in the cilium and not elsewhere in the cell to sort of compartmentalize them. But another idea is also that there may be factors in the cilium that are sort of unique to the cilium, like specific lipids or proteins or metabolites that are not found anywhere else in the cell. And some of these GPCRs may may really need those in order in order to work properly. So that's that's yeah. sort of a, and 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 the, and the the answer may kind of be for different receptors and pathways. It may be some combination of those things. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's just a, an elite an elite club for for yes. whatever functions. And a, an elite club, but but uh, but I but I guess to build on that analogy, a club where we don't exactly know what the membership rules are because <laughs> you know the, exactly. the, 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 the 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 receptors that have made it into that club. It just seems to it, it seems to be a very odd odd assortment. Um, but I but I think that's one of the, the fun things about working out. There probably is some underlying logic to it that we just don't don't understand yet. And and my guess would be that it's very difficult to look at the signaling of of the receptors and the of the components of this little club separately from the rest of the cell. Yes, that 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 has been a, a huge problem. And and actually, we can we can maybe that we may want to get to that in a, in a little bit um, when we talk about smoothing. But one of the problems is that um, you know doing um, you know the psyllium is is really in a lot of ways still very difficult to access. Um, you can do imaging on it, but it's it's quite complicated because it's so small. Um, so it, it's only a few microns long. It's only a fraction of a micron wide. So it actually has about the volume of a, of a bacterium. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine how difficult that is. And um, you really can't do much biochemistry on it. Um, you can't, there's not really a clear way, you know, in the field to sort of, or a reproducible procedure for separating the psyllium away from the, the cell body, as it's called. Yeah. Um, so the biochemistry is very, very limited. And also the kinds of functional assays that you can do in the psyllium are also really, really limited. And so I think, because um, you asked a little bit about how I got into studying GPCRs. So yeah. I think um, that was something that I really struggled with, I think, early on in my postdoc. And, and so to, to take a step back for a second, you know, there are these, these huge mysteries surrounding smooth end and how it works. But... Um, you know, because the people that had worked on smoothened in the past had mostly been cell and developmental biologists. There, there was really this idea that, you know, it's very important to study smoothened uh, in sort of the most physiological system possible, meaning in the psyllium, you know, endogenous protein or something expressed at very close to endogenous levels. And, you know, I think what I kind of realized um, after doing that for a little while is that it's incredibly difficult and there's just a, a lot of limitations to what you can do in a system like that. And, and, and some of it really was coming back to this idea that like, oh, whatever is activating smoothen has to be something special that's just in the psyllium. And so you can't really study it in any other context. I mean, that was maybe my, my perception of, of it. Um, but what I came to realize was that, you know, if we don't figure out some better system to use to be able to manipulate smoothen, it's going to be so difficult to solve these questions. And you know, really in this, in the, in the psyllium, you know, the, the, the imaging was, was really difficult about chemistry was almost, you know, almost non-existent, I would say. And the kinds of functional assays that people could use were things that were like really, really far downstream of some of the things that you're probably used to looking at for GPCRs, like conformational readouts or, you know, you know, sets, you know, membrane proximal sensors of activity. And, you know, that, that was really how I started to get really deeply 
into into GPCRs was that I realized that we have to have some better system than this, something that was sort of simpler, easier to manipulate. And I, you know, I think this is something that people in the GPCR field probably just take for granted. Like, you know, if you're studying a chemokine receptor, for example, like you don't have to study it in, in B cells. You know, you can also just express the, the gene for the chemokine receptor in HEC293 cells. And yes, it doesn't recapitulate all the biology, but a lot of the key properties that actually does recapitulate and you can find, you can do ligand binding, you can do G protein coupling, you know, you can search for, th for, for factors that regulate activity. You can make it look at all kinds of mutants. And so, you know, a, a, a sort of a simplified system like that is something that's really powerful because it just opens up this whole new set of tools that you can use to study activity. And, and so, you know, I started at that point, to, I think really, dive deeply into GPCRs, because what, what I realized was that even if Smoothin is this oddball member of the GPCR family, and even if this idea about ligand binding or G-protein coupling is not really correct for how Smoothin works in its canonical pathway, at least, at the very least, the kinds of like tools and the kinds of approaches and the kinds of thought of, of ideas in the GPCR field, I, I just had the sense that they were going to be relevant. Um, and I guess most importantly, um, in a practical sense, you know, there weren't a lot of people that were doing it that way. I mean, most of the field was was, was really looking a lot more at, you know, you know, these 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 really in, in vivo systems and 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 cilia. So, you know, I started to really read a lot about GPCRs. I started to go to a lot of GPCR meetings, and I would just sort of, you know, I would kind of sit there and hear all these interesting talks and just kind of like write down, okay, here's like this technique I could use. Here's that technique I could use, and it was almost like I was—it was like going to a, a shopping mall and kind of having all these <laughs> these things presented for me. Um, but but I also started to kind of go back into the GPCR literature too, and I you know I, I read a lot of the papers from you know from Bob Lefkowitz and from Brian Kabilka. Um and then even you know farther back than that, I went and, and, and looked at some of the papers from like Martin Rodbell and, and Al Gilman um, on their, their work on G proteins, and and I think what I kind of realized from all of that was that in all these cases, you know, it was always some very simplified accessible system that they used in order to make these big discoveries. Like, like one, I guess one example that really inspired me was um, I read the paper from Jeff Benevic when he was in the Lefkowitz lab about the identification of beta adrenergic receptor kinase, which is now GRK2. And it was like such a, I mean, a, a deceptively simple system. It was just beta adrenergic receptors purified, reconstituted into lipid vesicles. And then it was the start of this sort of massive biochemical fractionation effort to discover these kinases. But that ended up just being such a fundamental discovery. And it was all, it, it wasn't done with, you know, um, you know, endogenous receptors and you know, kinases. And, and, and so it was, it was all, it was all done with, with biochemistry using a very simple, relatively you know, straightforward readout, which is just phosphorylation of the receptor. And that was the kind of stuff that I really wanted to do with, with Smoothend, um, just to use these kinds of, of reductionist approaches and these simplified systems. I felt that that was the key to cracking all these mysteries. I love that. You made, you made so many good points. I'm going to try to, to take them apart. I love the yep. idea. So we agreed on the fact that Smoothend is, is a complicated system. People have been using um, you know, more physiologically relevant systems to study this, electrophysiology. But yeah. then we haven't gotten all the answers we wanted. And I love right. your approach of, you know, taking it out of the context and then putting it in a very simple system. And the simpler is the better. 
Right, right. In order and, to and, understand, and this is, I think, it. a pretty prevalent idea in the GPCR world. I mean, I, I feel almost, I don't. It, it, it's something that we all take for granted so much that it's almost like not even worth saying it. This idea that you just express the receptor in a hex cell to start to learn about it. But you know, it's yeah. really interesting how when you know when you go to a slightly different field, that that idea is not as widespread. For example. I love it. And I think you're right. And I, I think in the GPCR field in general, we got to a point where if you have mm. a receptor of interest and you express it in hex cells and you do your regular quote unquote signaling assays, people are like, yeah. And so what? Yeah. Yeah. But then coming at it from a different field where people don't even think about this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing it this way, then that it, it actually regains that value. And I think right. understanding how a GPCR works, any GPCR, or any molecule has, mm -hmm. you have to put all these approaches together. The way I Absolutely. see them is little boxes. Absolutely. It's, you express it in hex cells, you see what it does, you get some answers, then you put it back in a, in a model organism or in a more physiological context. And then pooling, like pulling yes. the data together is what's going to give you the more information. Yeah. It's like, it's sort of like the analogy with the elephant and how everybody's sort of, you know, touching a different part of the elephant and they all, yeah. all describe it differently. But yeah, I mean, exactly. basically, I think the thing that I always try to keep in mind is that every every model system that you use in science has strengths and weaknesses. So there's no single model system that you could that could ever answer all the questions about how 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 an aspect of biology works. And so, you know, the kinds of top down approaches that you know people in in developmental biology often use, which is to take you know an embryo and start to just you know do genetics on it, for example. That's top. I consider that to be top down. Um, the, this kind of approach is more like bottom up. It's like, well, we have a, a critical component and let's figure out what is the very simplest system that we can use to start to study its behavior. And, and you're absolutely right. Like all these things together are, the, are, are what ultimately is going to give us, uh, you know, a, a more complete understanding of how something works. But you have to, you have, you have to, I think, recognize, you know, when a certain kind of a, a model or kind of approach is not being used, that that's something that you should try to go towards because the chance of finding something new is going to be a lot higher there. Especially with, with all the new biophysical tools that exist to study GPCR. Oh, yeah. Structure function relationships. Let, let's get into that because I'm curious. So what did you do with Smoothend uh, and how, did, how are you applying these biophysical methods to study and better understand the function of smoothened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's definitely get into that. So um, I, I told you when I, when I started my postdoc, you know, there, it was really not clear what turned smoothened on. So, so you know, Pash had to inhibit smoothened and then somehow that was keeping smoothened off and somehow that process had to kind of go away in order for smoothened to be turned on. We didn't know what it was. Um, the idea of smoothened having the, the idea that, that was sort of floating around at the time was that PASH might be a transporter and it might be transporting some endogenous smoothened ligand or transporting or rearranging it or somehow depriving smoothened of some ligand that it needed in order to be turned on. So, so that was sort of the idea. That idea actually came mostly from um, sequence comparisons. And so PASH, the PASH sequence looked a lot like the sequence of these bacterial uh, transporters that were involved in transporting lipids into and out of bacteria. And um, in particular, there, there was a, a relation, there was a link between some past related proteins in invertebrates and cholesterol. So there's a, a protein related to past called NPC1 that's involved in cholesterol exit from lysosomes, for example. 
Um, and so the idea, and again, there was you know no really direct evidence to support this, but the kind of idea was that PASH might be some kind of a cholesterol or some kind of a, a lipid transporter, and that smoothin might have a lipid ligand. And another thing that was known at the time was that um, hedgehog pathway activity was really, really sensitive to changes in cholesterol levels in cells. And so if you had, for example, mutations in the, in the, that affected cholesterol biosynthesis, or if you used um, pharmacological agents <clears throat> that um, extracted cholesterol from membranes, you would just completely shut down hedgehog signaling at the level of smoothing. And so that had sort of led to these ideas about cholesterol being potentially like a, you know something that would 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 change smoothing's activity state. But it was still really, I guess, our understanding was still really limited because you know a lot of these things again were happening in in intact cells. Yeah. And, um, you know, we didn't know, for example, if you depleted cholesterol from cells, I mean, those, those agents deplete every sterile from the membrane, right? And, and there's not just cholesterol, but there's hundreds of, of cholesterol metabolites yeah. around. Um, and in addition to that, and, and so from that, you know, we don't know how, from interpreting that, does that mean that smoothing is actually being activated by cholesterol or is it some other, like some other uh, molecule, right? And then also cholesterol has all these different effects on membrane properties too, right? I mean, with RAS yeah. and that was another idea that was floating around. And so basically at the time, you know, with those tools, we kind of knew that we, we kind of thought that lipids and particular sterols were really critical, but there was not like a really clear idea of what they were doing. You know, are they binding to smoothen directly? Are they having these physical properties? You know, what, you know, how, how important is, is cholesterol really the thing that's, that's turning smoothen on, or is it just facilitating the action of another ligand? And so I got to that point, we got, we got to that point and I just thought, you know, what we need is in vitro reconstitution. This is something that is like really a very clean and a very simple way to address this question. So if we can purify smoothened and put it into some kind of an in vitro system with a functional assay, then we can directly test, you know, first of all, does cholesterol directly activate smoothened versus something else? And, um, you know, does cholesterol actually, um, you know, does, does it potentially have a, you know, a physical effect or could it be binding directly? And so, you know, from going to GPCR meetings and from reading work from Brian Kabilka and others in the field, you know, they, they had made a lot of progress on in two fronts. You know, the first front was figuring out ways to express and purify biochemical quantities of GPCRs. And, um, you know, so that had really taken off um, kind of at the kind of, you know, before I started my postdoc. And then the other thing was also the nanodisks, which are, you know, a really popular system in GPCR biology for, you know, for biophysics and for structure. But the really cool thing about nanodisks is that it's a, it's a fully defined in vitro system where you have complete control over everything that goes into that, you know, including the composition of the lipids. And that was a system where, you know, I could basically just reconstitute and purify, purify, reconstitute, smoothened and put in whatever lipids I wanted to and just ask what the effect on activity was using a, a conformational readout. And by doing that, we actually figured out that cholesterol alone is able to activate smoothened to near maximal levels in that system. So again, this is really different from a lot of other GPCRs because you know there's many examples of GPCRs that are regulated by cholesterol, like the serotonin receptor, for example, um, is regulated by cholesterol levels, but still its ligand is serotonin. Right. I mean, serotonin is the is the main event there, whereas for smoothing, all you needed to put into these nanodisks, you know, besides simple phospholipids was cholesterol. And then that turned it on. 
So, so that was an example of, I think, a really like a conceptually simple experiment where it really drew on, um, you know, a lot of the tools and a lot of the ideas that it really had just been applied very nicely to other GPCRs. And, and, you know, it did take some time to figure out how to apply them to Smoothin, but really all that we, we did was, was, you know, build on some of the, the work that was already out there and, and just be able to bring it into our system. So. I love it. And how did you, so did you tag the, first of all, was it easy to purify smoothened? Some, I think the challenge was with a lot of GPCRs in general, but with, with mm -hmm. a lot of, um, you know, exotic, let's call them exotic GPCRs is purifying yeah. them. So mm -hmm. one, were you able to purify it? Two, what was the readout like? What did you yeah. measure? Okay. So, so the, the, the purification, the purification and the expression actually ended up being pretty straightforward. Um, we end up using you know, we used SF9 cells a little bit, but we tend to rely more and more on mammalian cells and sort of the suspension mammalian cells and the BACMAM systems that have been really, mm -hmm. really effective in producing a lot of GPCRs. Um, it turns out that Smoothin actually works really, really well um, for that. And yet, you, know, you have to make some truncations and some sequence modifications, but that's yeah. pretty standard for a lot of GPCRs. And so we yeah. did have to play around with that for a bit. But, you know, once we did that, it was actually fairly, fairly straightforward to, to be able to use those systems. Um, yeah. So in terms of the readout, so that, yeah, that, that this is you know, now, um, we'll probably have to bring G protein coupling into, into the picture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time, you know, so, so I will say that, you know, sm smoothened, um, it, it definitely was known before this, that it can couple to G proteins in vitro. So if you expressed it in 293 cells, it would turn on, you know, GI, GO coupled readouts. Um, the, the thing that was really confusing to a lot of people was that, you know, they, they, so they had thought the field had thought for a long time that because smoothin is really good at coupling to G proteins or to inhibitory G proteins in particular, that that might be the way that it's signaled downstream. But the issue was that, um, you know, if you block, um, the inhibitory G protein signaling with things like pertussis toxin. Um, you know, many, many labs had tried that experiment and, and had really never seen any, any clear effect on activation of glee. So, um, you know, for a while, the field, I think, I mean, it depends on which field you're in. I mean, I think in the hedgehog field, a lot of people were sort of staying away from G-protein coupling because it wasn't that clear if it was something physiological or not. But what I sort of thought at the time was, okay, so smoothen can couple the G-proteins. So why don't we just use them as basically like a proxy for whatever the real downstream readout is? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's coupling in a way that depends on it, on smoothened activity state. You know, I, we did a lot of pharmacology on it to validate that, you know, all the same, you know, agonists and antagonists, you know, synthetic agonists and antagonists that turn smoothened on or off. They, they do the, in, in the glee assays, they do the same thing in the G protein assays. And so I just thought, well, this is a great proxy because the thing is we have, we don't know what's going on downstream of smoothin, but we do know how to measure G-protein coupling. There's a million ways to do that. And, you know, G-protein coupling is something that happens within a second, you know, after most receptors get activated. And so I just did basically the sort of the old school GTP gamma S binding assays in these nanodisks. And it, it worked very, very well. Um, and so that ended up being kind of our, our proxy readout for, for smoothin activity state. But, you know, to be fair, I think, at the time, you know, people, including us, were kind of wondering, is the big question is, okay, you can do this stuff, but is this really reflecting the same molecular events that are happening when smoothen signals to glee? And by and large, I think the answer has been yes. Um, I mean, it's not the, the confirmation that couples to G-proteins is probably not exactly the same as the one that couples to glee, 
but the basic conclusions I think do hold. And so that I think ended up being a really helpful thing about being in the GBCR world was that I became aware of sort of this, you know, all the tools for, for, for measuring these kinds of things yeah. um, uh, that, I, that I didn't know about before. That's fantastic. I love it. Uh, one other question regarding the, the purified smoothens. You mentioned that you had to modify it in order to, to be able to purify it. What was the yeah. extent of the modifications? Uh, not too much. I mean, um, what, one thing that we definitely had to do, so smoothen has this very long unstructured C-terminal tail mm -hmm. that actually is essential for communication to Glee, although it's not needed for G-protein coupling, it turns out. So we, we had to lop that off. Um, because without that, that tail, you know, appears to be unstructured in, in solution. We can actually get into that in a, in a little bit later. Um, but so we had, we had to lop that off. Um, and then, um, there's a, a sort of an unstructured domain at the very, very end terminus of the receptor that we got rid of. Um, but we, we just replaced it with, you know, basically used the same kind of system that the Gobloka lab and others used with the flag at the end terminus. And it just turned yeah. out that we could plug into that really easily. And, and it worked really well. So that, that was really just the extent of the modification. That's awesome. I, I really yeah. love it. Um, um, has anyone tried, or maybe you did try to, since you mentioned that, yes, there is G-protein coupling. Have, uh -huh. you, as, have you ever, and you, have you tried to express the, the wild type smoothened tagged with, with some kind of a fluorescent protein and look at, for example, FRET or BRET interactions between smoothened and G-proteins yeah. and hex cells? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, so we haven't done so much with, with we, we, we've done a lot with bread. I mean, not so much with, with G-protein coupling, but there are definitely mm -hmm. some labs that have. Nevin Lambert's lab has done that. And Gunnar Schulte also um, has done some of that. Yeah. We, we definitely, we did experiments where um, we would express smoothen in 293 cells, and then we would look directly at cyclic AMP formation um, in, in live cells. And we could definitely see really nice effects of smoothened um, on those readouts. Um, and, and, we, and we were pretty confident it was through G-protein coupling because that could be blocked by things like pertussis toxin. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so definitely, I mean, that was, again, one of the mysteries here is that, you know, it's really good at coupling to G-proteins, and yet that doesn't seem to be by itself, you know, the full explanation for how it, how it communicates with, uh, with its physiological downstream target. Yeah, it's, yeah. so it seems to me that that, that that point of contact is missing. So basically, in order right. to be... Uh, to do its function, so for smoothens to function in developmental biology, so to activate the transcription factor and initiate gene expression, the missing part is where where does the receptor and the transcription factor interact? Exactly. That that so so that was really the million dollar question. And so you know what we what, what we all wanted to figure out in the field was what is going on immediately downstream of smoothen. You know, if it's yeah. not G protein couple, if it's not G proteins, what is it? And, and that was, um, yeah, so, so, so we actually, I mean, I'll, I can talk about that in a little bit, but we actually made, you know, we think some, some really critical progress on that recently, um, which has been really exciting because, you know, for a long time, we we're all just, I, mean, I was scratching my head, like, how on earth is this working if it's, if it's not through G proteins? Um, but we think we have an answer for that, so. And what yeah. is the answer for that? <laughs> if you yeah. can say. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So th 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 this is all published. So, so we, we, we put out a paper recently in, in PLOS Biology. Um, it just came out in April from, from my lab. And then we have also a new preprint that we just put up in the beginning of July that kind of talks about kind of the next step in this. But the short answer is that what Smoothen does is it has a way to block PKA uh, signaling 
but not using G protein. So it's, it's very unusual, or it seems to be very unusual. But what Smoothin does is that it turns out to, it, it directly binds to the catalytic subunit of protein kinase A, which mm -hmm. is very, very unusual for a GPCR. Um, and so PKA, as I pointed out before, is this incredibly important regulator of GLI. So PKA phosphorylates GLI, and that turns it into an inactive transcription factor. And so um, the idea was really that something has to prevent PKA from phosphorylating GLI in order to turn GLI on. And maybe smoothen could be the, the thing that does it, but you know, how does it work if it's not through inhibitory G proteins? So it turns out the answer is that it directly binds to the PKA catalytic subunit, and it does two things. So, so the, the first thing that it does is that it recruits the PKA catalytic subunit to the membrane, you know, from to the ciliary membrane, you know, from the the sort of I guess the the rest of the cilium, and we think what that does is that it sort of deprive it sort of sequesters PKA away from GLI, which is a soluble protein, and helps to prevent phosphorylation. So that was sort of the and and, and so uh, that was really the the um, the subject of the first paper that we wrote, but then it turned out that was not the whole story, and the the, the second part of it I think ended up being even more you know, surprising, which was that basically smoothened has this, this uh, decoy substrate motif in it that physically blocks the active site of PKA. And so it just basically wedges in there and just interrupts catalysis. And so it, it, it's, as far as I know, the only example of a GPCR that physically blocks the activity of, of PKA. And so that, you know, ended up actually being, it was definitely not something that we were expecting to find. But it really explains how smoothened can block PKA, but without the need to use uh, inhibitory G protein. So it actually makes a lot of the um, experiments sort of make sense in the field. That's that's so fascinating, um, and especially with a long C-terminal tail, you would you would assume that it has to do physically interact physically with other proteins. Right. That that was the idea. I mean, basically, we we all. You know, the, the whole field, I think, really felt that smoothen has to be interacting with something um, in order to, 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 to signal to, to Glee. And, and so I can, I can maybe tell you uh, the story a little bit behind how we made this discovery. It was, it, it was actually sort of, there were sort of two, you know, really wild stories here um, that allowed us to do this. So, so the first was, I guess, identifying this connection between smoothen and PKA. And... Um, so basically what happened was that, um, you know, my lab is, is a pretty new lab, right? We're, we're pretty small. Yeah. Um, and so I had a couple of undergraduates who, who came and wanted to work in the lab. And one of the undergraduates, uh, Corbin Arbiseth, who was, he, re he recently graduated. Um, but at the time, you know, he came to my lab and I wanted to just give him a project to work on. And we were really interested in this question of smoothened, you know, downstream coupling. But it just seemed like, my gosh, that's like way too hard of a question to give to an undergraduate who's never even held a pipette before. And so, you know, at the time, right, we were thinking about, okay, like you said, Smoothen has the C-terminal tail. It probably interacts with, with something. And we had had the idea that maybe we would use mass spec to figure out what it was. And I thought, okay, you know, maybe it's, it must be some unknown factor. So let's, let's try to use mass spec to figure it out. Yeah. And, um, you know, even that I felt was probably a lot to ask for, for somebody that had just, uh, you know, just come to the lab. And so I thought, well, why don't we start with something simpler? And so I just said, okay, well, before we go on this mass spec expedition, why don't you just test all the known components of the pathway to see if they interact with smoothened? And um, I thought, you know, it's probably not going to work. 
Um, they'll probably he'll probably get some negative data, but at the same time he'll learn about how to work in the lab. You know, he'll maybe we'll be able to write like a little undergraduate research grant about it, and he can get some you know some funding. Um, and so Corbin sort of went around and sort of he, he went in and he sort of dutifully you know cloned all and and, and I, I guess he cloned all of these 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 genes into Brett vectors. And and I think that was the one thing I don't want to call it intelligent because I think that makes it sound like we we knew what we were doing. But the, the one sort of smart thing that we did here was that we used Brett for looking at these interactions instead of things like co-IPs or co-localization studies, like a lot of other people in the field. And, and as you know, right, Brett is so is such a powerful technique. You know, it's it's a you know a way a way to look at protein protein interactions in cells and really stringently assess things like specificity by doing saturation experiments and things like that. Yeah. So Corvin, you know, cloned all of these these um, pathway components into Brett acceptor vectors, and he made a smoothened Brett donor. And he went through, and um, he just discovered this and uh, this enormous Brett interaction between smoothened and the catalytic subunit of PKA. And I remember very vividly when he he told me about it because I was actually at a conference. It was a cilia conference, and the night before, I had stayed up kind of late with a friend of mine, you know, colleague. And we were talking about some of these questions that smoothened, and we were kind of lamenting the fact that, like, is anybody ever going to figure any of this out? It just it seemed like such a murky problem. And I kind of went to bed that night after that conversation, thinking, like, oh gosh, are we, you know, are, are we ever going to figure this out? And then the next morning, you know, as I was getting ready to leave the conference, then you know, I I saw Corbin's data, and I saw this huge breadth signal, and I was like, oh my gosh! And I didn't know what was going on at the time, but I thought this has got to be something important because the major positive regulator in the upstream part of the pathway, the, ma yeah. the major negative regulator, they're, they're talking to each other somehow, yeah. right? So that was sort of the first, I guess, story behind this. And so um, it ended up just, you know, even though um, this was uh, just one person in the, in the lab who sort of did this, I guess, in retrospect, it was sort of a bold experiment, even though I think it was actually kind of a, of a naive experiment on my part, but it ended up leading to this discovery and it really kind of sucked everybody in the lab into it. Um, and we spent the next year trying to, to figure this out. And, and so that the, the result of all that work was the, the PLOS biology paper. And the thing about that paper was that um, we knew that Smoothin interacted with PKA. And um, we also knew that it depended on Smoothin's activity state because it turns out that GRK kinases, right? You know, are, are, you know the, they're, they're actually moonlighting in the hedgehog pathway. They, they recognize the active state of smoothened and phosphorylate it. But mm -hmm. instead of triggering arrestin binding, like you do, like it does for most GPCRs, it triggers PKA catalytic subunit binding. So, so. yeah. So, and, and, and it actually makes a lot of sense because it's known that GRK2 and 3 are very strongly required for hedgehog signaling. So, so we have this idea, this model, right? Okay, smoothened sequesters PKA at the membrane. And um, that's how it prevents GLE from being phosphorylated. Yeah, I okay. love. I was just gonna say, I love the simplicity of the experiment. Yeah. I love the fact that you you just you know, just just the just going through the exercise and mm -hmm. trying to look for a protein protein interaction with a simple live cell method. Yes, and you know, yes, you're right. Maybe you maybe it would have been nothing, mm -hmm. but I think uh, for. Two, two things for a student, for an undergrad to go through the exercise mm -hmm. and really be systematic. I yes. think that's a great experience. Absolutely. But then yeah. to be so lucky to actually detect something really cool. 
Yes. And then building a whole paper around it, and and it's an important discovery. I think it's just uh, it's the the awesomeness is twofold at this point. Oh yeah, and 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 I think the other thing I learned from this is also that, and I, I think this is maybe something worth emphasizing for the audience here, right? Is that um, you know a lot of young scientists sort of assume that you need a lot of training and a lot of experience to make a discovery, but I that's actually not true. And, you know, I think scientific discoveries are things that in principle, any of us can make, you know, whether you're a Nobel laureate or somebody just starting in the lab, you know, really what it comes down to is, you know, working hard, um, being willing to try something new and also being lucky. Um, but it's, yes. it, it's, it's very kind of democratizing in a lot of ways because, you know, a, a discovery is something that really is in, is within reach for everybody. I think so too. And I think the fact that, you know, uh, reading up in the literature and trying to think outside the box or taking that 3000 feet overview of of a question Mm -hmm. allows you to ask or not not to ask simple questions, which Mm -hmm. have a deep uh, impact, but also allows you to design very simple methods or very simple experiments and direct experiments to answer that particular question. I, I totally agree. And, and I think that, um, you know, I feel like in biology, right, every, you know, finding the right tool for the job is, is a big part of the, of, of the, of, of how you do science. And, you know, it, I think for every question, you've you got the right model system and the right approach, right? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in this case, right, Brett, you know, ended up being exactly the right approach to use, because it's a way to look at protein protein interactions in a living system you know, without having to do a lot of biochemistry and in, in vitro reconstitution, which ends up, you know, we are doing that now for this interaction, but it ends up being pretty tricky. And I think if we had started with that approach, we would have almost certainly missed this. So, um, yeah, I mean, some of it was maybe, at a, I, I, again, I can't say that I had a lot of foresight about it, but I think from going to enough GPCR meetings and reading enough papers, you know, I did know that Brett was such a powerful technique and I did feel like it had a lot of potential here because people weren't you know, really using it so much to study this receptor. This is awesome. So uh, before we move on to the next part of, of the next paper that you, you mentioned that kind of came out in July, yeah. um, I want to take a moment to talk about the ligands. So you mentioned that you used Brett to, to determine this interaction, to discover this interaction mm-hmm. between the CTL of smoothened and the, um, the active site of PKA. Right. What type of ligands did you use? Yeah, so so that so so one thing that that was good for for smoothen compared to other class FGPCRs is that there is there's a lot of pharmacology for it, and so we have really good, you know, endogenous, you know, synthetic and naturally occurring, also, uh, you know, agonists and inverse agonists. So you know, if you just express smoothen in two nine three cells, for example, or, or any cell for that matter, if you don't, as long as you don't have patched around or, or if patches at low levels, smoothen is going to be constitutively active because it's essentially going to be binding to the cholesterol in the membrane. Mm-hmm. And um, just as a side note, you know, we actually, um, you know, when I started my lab, we actually had a, a really nice collaboration um, with Ashish Manglick's lab at UCSF that's still ongoing, where we helped to uh, determine the active state structure of smoothen, you know, stabilized by a nanobody. And we actually figured out, you know, from that exactly how cholesterol binds and how it triggers activation. And it, it turns out that, you know, so it's sort of allowing those experiments I started as a postdoc to really come full circle because we realized that cholesterol directly binds to smoothen and triggers the same activating conformational change that it does for other GPCRs. Um, so, so just expressing smoothen in 293 cells, for example, in these bread assays will lead to constitutive activity as long as patched is not co-expressed, for example. 
Um, but we do have, um, you know, positive allosteric modulators. There's one that's called SAG, smooth and agonist, that will activate it to even higher levels. Um, and we have really good inverse agonists um, based on cyclopamine, which is a compound that actually um, has a really interesting history, especially related to Utah. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a, it's a teratogen, you know, it produces birth defects. Yeah. Um, and that was how it was discovered. But it turns out to be a really powerful inverse agonist for smoothen. So, so we have really good ways to turn smoothen on and off um, in these assays, which is, I think, one of the, the blessings of, of, of working on this, this receptor is that there's good pharmacology. That's amazing. Where does cholesterol bind? Yeah, good question. So um, it binds in a couple of locations. So, um, what, so for, from our structure... We figured out that the the what you know really the 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 the, the major cholesterol binding site on smoothen is within the transmembrane domain of smoothen, and so smoothen is a little bit different from other GPCRs. It has a particularly long, you know, binding pocket that's that's pretty large in volume, and so um, cholesterol turns out to bind really in the deep part of that pocket. And in doing that, what it does is it actually triggers a conformational change in the receptor that's, again, very similar to the, the activating conformational change in other GPCRs. So that's one place that it binds. Another place that it binds is also in the extracellular domain of smoothened. And this was something that was discovered even before um, our structure. It was discovered by, by a number of other labs. Um, and so there's a cholesterol binding site there as well. And then in our structure, we used SAG to stabilize the active state, which binds in the membrane domain, but just a little bit north of where the cholesterol binds. And now some recent work has shown that cholesterol can probably bind in that part of smoothened as well. So it turns out that there's probably, there's multiple cholesterol binding sites in smoothened, but all, and, and all of them work together to help stabilize this active state of the receptor. And the, the allosteri there, you know, is incredibly interesting and incredibly complicated. Um, and it's something that we definitely, you know, want. It, 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 it's really worth worth figuring that out, um, you know, how that works. Yeah, actually, my next question would have been, how many cholesterols does it take to activate smoothened? It, could it sounds, be, be, it sounds, sounds like, like a, joke. a joke. Yeah, it's like <laughs> smoothly walks into a bar and yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that, that, that is a good question. So it, it's not clear. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I, I could definitely imagine that under some circumstances, you might have, you know, one or two of these sites occupied. And under other circumstances, you might have all the sites occupied. And, and I think, you know, coming back to the biology of the system, that might be a really important way that nature sort of like creates this system where you kind of stabilize discrete activity states of smoothened. Yeah. Because remember in, in development, right, you know, you know the, the amount of hedgehog protein, which is really what smoothened is reading out here through the activity of past, right? Yeah. Those amounts are really, really important. That's what's going to determine, for example, what kind of a cell, a, you know, kind of a fate a particular cell adopts. And, you know, when you have these proteins that are ingredients, right, like hedgehog is, a very small change in the amount of hedgehog actually has a pretty big effect on what kind of a fate a cell can adopt. And so smoothened has to be able to measure these things really precisely. And so I think the idea of, I mean, this is, a, you know, a little bit of a, maybe, maybe a naive idea right now, because we still don't understand all the allosteri. But the idea that like you would be able to destabilize, you would be able to stabilize like sort of a low activity state or a medium activity state or a high activity state, you know, could be a way to kind of allow smoothen to accomplish this graded signaling that it needs to, to do in order to, to pattern tissues and organs. I love it. I love it. I can, I can, I can, you're, we were talking and I could see that the fact that the amount of hedgehog 
interacting with it with its uh, patch yeah. uh, <laughs> would would you know determine how many cholesterol molecules can bind to uh, to, uh, to to the receptor, which would then depend on how many I don't know how many PKAs. Um, exactly. Exactly. Would yeah. be would be inhibited. Exactly. I yeah. think it's just phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's been such a fun system to work on, and, and I think again, taking a step back, right? Like, there's so many examples of cholesterol, you know, regulating GPCR activity, but I think this is probably the most direct example where cholesterol really is the ligand, and it really is also the messenger in this pathway, right, between patch and smoothened, um, that uh, actually accesses the binding site through this tunnel uh, in the in the bottom, and and so um, you know, playing a role like this, I mean, it really is playing the role of a ligand in this, for, for this yeah. receptor. And so it's just this very direct, it's, it's, it's really the main event here. It's, it's not, you know, a supporting actor in any, in any sense of the imagination. Exactly. I love yeah. it. I really love it. Um, so you were mentioning that you recently published a new, a new paper. Yes. Yeah. I would definitely Tell us about, talk that. about that. So, so that's still in the preprint stage right now. And so um, we just put it up in the beginning of July, but that ended up being another really wild story. And that was coming from this model about, okay, we know, we knew smoothen and PKA interact, but to go from that to like smoothen actually inhibits PKA activity. And so the way that this unfolded was just really kind of, kind of a wild ride. So, um, you know, we started to write this, this plus biology paper during the pandemic. And, you know, I was sort of stuck at home, you know, my lab members were all sort of sequestered at home and we had a lot of fun writing the paper together. And so we wrote this paper and I just felt like, you know, PKA has been studied for decades and decades and we kind of came into it sideways like this right and i just felt like you know i i really should like show this to some to, to an expert in the pka field and just get get their their input on it you know to to to, to know that we're, we're on the right track here and so um i just sort of sent a cold email to susan taylor at ucsd who's you know really kind of the one of the world experts in sort of the the, the biophysics and the structure of pka you know and she you know her lab had made all these seminal contributions to pka uh, structure over the year, the, the first structure of, of, PK, of PKA, the first structure of a kinase ever, you know, actually. Wow. And so, you know, I sent her an email and, you know, she's, and I told her a little bit about our work. And so we, we quickly set up a, a meeting and, you know, she was also stuck at home because the <laughs> pandemic was, you know, was, was affecting all of us. And so, you know, I kind of wonder in retrospect, whether any of this would have happened um, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So it's maybe one silver lining. So anyway, we, we showed her, um, we, I told her about our story and she's like, oh, this sounds pretty interesting. And then she just said, well, you know, you, you think you think PKA is binding to the C tail. Like, do you know anything about that? And I said, well, not really. So she said, well, let me see the sequence of the C tail. And so I showed it to her, just the figure from the paper. And within about 15 seconds, she had recognized, oh, oh my God, there is a sequence here in the smooth and tail that looks like a PKA inhibitor. And so this just totally blew my mind. And, you know, just to, to give a little bit of background here, you know, typically the things in cells that regulate PKA activity are what are known as pseudosubstrates. And so they will bind to the active side of the kinase, but just sort of take up space. And they prevent, you know, just sit there and they prevent the, the kinase from phosphorylating anything and from, from continuing catalysis. So they're really like decoy substrates. And so this protein kinase inhibitor or PKI is really like the classic example of that. And that was, you know, something that Susan was very, very familiar with because that was a sequence that she really knows by heart. And so she, she quickly picked out this, this sequence and then it just became very, very clear to both of us. Like, oh my gosh, 
Smoothin is going to inhibit this thing is going to smoothin is going to stick this thing directly into the active site of the kinase and shut down activity. And that's, you know, how it's going to that, that's going to be the other critical part of this mechanism. And so that just basically launched this, this collaboration over the last, you know, uh, eight, eight to 10 months or so involving both of our labs and a number of other labs too. And, and it's just been so much fun because I think, um, you know, we didn't really know anything about PKA starting this and they didn't know anything about smoothin or sonic hedgehog, but we really, you know, we really brought different things to the table. And as a result of our collaboration, we now, I think, have a really clear idea that smoothin does use this decoy substrate motif to, to directly block the activity of PKA. And so it, it just really ended up being, you know, a lot, a lot of fun for, for all of us. How cool is that? So, you know, a little sequence getting so many people involved in a great project. And oh, you, yeah. would, you wouldn't think that, you know, PK, I mean, P, yes, the PKA function is important, mm -hmm. but as someone who's never really worked directly on PKA, in my mind, okay, it phosphorylates stuff and it does whatever it needs to be doing, but right. really connecting it to something so important as smoothened function, yes. I think it's just a, it takes it to the next level. Yeah, it was it was definitely not something that we that, that we expected to find uh, coming into this, but it but it actually made it made so much sense because you know we knew that this intracellular domain of smoothing was critical, and I always felt in my heart that that was the key to to answering this question is that we know it's critical for communication to Glee, but what is it? What does it look like? I can tell you, I spent many many afternoons as a postdoc blasting it against you know everything I could think of, and coming up with nothing, and so you can imagine how much it must have, you know, it really blew my mind the way that somebody would just look at this and, and see it. And, and it, it is hard to see if you're not looking for it, but you know, all the critical yeah. residues are there. And so it was, yeah, I mean, I think it was also a lesson about how the human mind is really more powerful than blast um, when it comes yes. down to it. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think, and I think when you're an expert in, in, in your field or in your proteins, then you just look at the sequence and you just recognize because your brain is looking for it already. Absolutely. Absolutely, which I find yeah. fantastic. Absolutely. I have two actually more questions, but two two and and with regards to uh, to smoothened. Uh, have you ever done any experiments where you started really chopping off portions of the N terminus or portions of the C terminus to see how uh, what the what was the contribution of the C terminal and N terminal tails of smoothened? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We, we we did quite a bit of that, and so um, the N terminus of smoothened. If you if you chop it off. It turns out smoothened is still able to um, to signal downstream to Glee, although it does have um, it does have some problems. It ends up having sort of too much basal activity, but at the same time, no stimulation by by hedgehog, and so that that sort of puzzled us for a while. But you know, we think the answer to that question is that probably you know this site in the membrane domain is really fundamental. But, you know, because there's this, also this site in the extracellular domain, and there may be, there may even be some possibility that cholesterol could even travel between them, that chopping it off is going to, you know, really get rid of a lot of that important allosteric that's critical to get proper smooth and regulation. So, so that, so we did that with the N-terminus, uh, you know, before. Um, with the C-terminus, basically, if you chop it off, smooth and can't signal to Glee anymore um, at all. Um, and it turned out that actually the other funny thing about this, this inhibitor motif was that it, we, we knew from, from other work in the field, if you chop off, if you, if you make C-terminal truncations of smoothened, basically the farthest that you can go is right where this PKI motif is. And if you go any mm -hmm. farther, it doesn't work anymore. But again, we had no idea what it was or what it looked like. And of course, you know, 
it made perfect sense once we, we knew what we were dealing with. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of our, our, our story with that. That's fantastic. And then our next question, uh, so you mentioned that there, there is great pharmacology out there uh, to study the function on the activation or the inhibition of a smoothened and mm -hmm. expressing it endogenously in, in, in hex cells. Uh, because of the cholesterol yields a constitutively active receptor that can be further activated by agonists. Right, right. And taking this information and putting it in the context of various cancers, are there any drugs um, that target smoothened in these cancers? Or is there a potential of you yeah. know, screening for drugs so that yes. target that, that is a good question. So, so the answer is yes. Um, there's actually, uh, smoothened is, is quite druggable. And there's already two um, FDA-approved smoothened inhibitors that are used in a number of different cancers, um, and so it's it's, it's actually a, you know a, a really excellent drug target in that sense. Um, but one of the interesting things is that actually those drugs were discovered before we knew anything about what activated smoothened. And so it, it turns out from our structure with Ashish, what we learned was that those drugs actually act as competitive antagonists for the cholesterol, and so that's that's how they work. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that they actually don't do that very well. They tend to bind more in the upper part of the pocket and extend a functional group downward towards the cholesterol. Um, and so they will kick the cholesterol off. But one of the problems is that it becomes very, very easy to get resistance mutations in the clinic because, you know, since there's so little overlap between the cholesterol and the inhibitor, it's very easy for the tumor to come up with a mutation and smoothened that will block the binding of the inhibitor, but spare the binding of the cholesterol that's needed to keep smooth and active. And so I think the challenge right now is dealing with those resistance issues because they come up very, very quickly and they really compromise the long-term efficacy of using smooth and inhibitors to treat cancer. And so one of the ideas that we have right now based on the structure um, is that if we had an inhibitor that binds in the deep part of the pocket that really overlaps extensively with the cholesterol, that that's probably going to be a much better inhibitor because it's going to be really difficult for the tumor to come up with a way to mutate smoothened that would block the inhibitor without also affecting the cholesterol. And so that's something that we're actually working on um, right now. Um, and, and, and I like that because I think it's a really clear example of the way that, you know, you have to do this basic science investigation of how these yeah. proteins work to be able to come up with that. I mean, there, would no, there, there, there's no way to come up with it otherwise. And so, um, yeah, definitely like that is an example of, you know, sort of some, some newer stuff that's going on in the field in terms of, of smooth and therapeutics. I love it. I love it. And what kind of, um, so as you mentioned, ideally you'd like a molecule that binds into the deep pocket, the deep region of the receptor right. to, um, get rid of the cholesterol or to make sure, you know, to stop the, the constitutive activity of, of smoothened, mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the tools that you would be using to, for example, screen for such molecules? Yeah, so um, so certainly one could imagine doing things like structure, you know, based uh, drug discovery, you know, in silico docking, things like that. It turns out, um, in a, in a, another another kind of funny coincidence here, there's already a real, you know, a, a very very potent and efficacious smoothen inhibitor that binds in the deep pocket and actually overlaps extensively with cholesterol, and it's a, a molecule called SAN one, and it's a laboratory tool compound. And there was a structure, you know, of smoothen bound to SAN one, you know, many years before ours. And the only thing people realized about it was, oh, isn't it unusual that it binds in the deep part of this pocket? All the other inhibitors bind in the upper part. But um, now that we have the structure of smooth and bound to cholesterol, now we know that actually that's desirable from this standpoint, right? 
And so it turns out we already have, you know, a nanomolar affinity um, tool compound that binds in the deep pocket and we're, we're starting to use it now, um, you know, in some of our experiments. And so um, it's, again, another funny example of how, you know, the, a lot of the previous pharmacology in the, in the field was really great and kind of came up with a lot of these inhibitors and kind yeah. of gave us a head start here. That's fantastic. That's great. So you, that tool compound could potentially become more than a tool compound. Yeah. Um, if, if it can be modified to hopefully get into the clinic or at least used as a, as a template. Right. And, 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 and even if it doesn't, I think just the idea of like drugging the deep pocket, if it ends up being sort of a tool compound to establish yeah. that concept would be really, yeah. really useful and would stimulate, you know, could, could even, for example, stimulate, um, you know, biotech and pharma companies to, 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 you know, to really mount a campaign to, to look for, for, you know, good deep pocket inhibitors for, for smoothened. What would be the best um, type of, you know, readout or signaling assay that you'd use um, to, to look for these, these type of molecules? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, I think you wouldn't want to do conventional drug screening because a, a lot of companies have done that. Um, that was what led to um, the existing smoothen inhibitors. So yeah. it's actually pretty easy to find those. Um, but again, they're not going to be drugging the right part of the pocket for the most part. They almost all bind in the upper part of the pocket. So yeah. I think probably, you know, maybe something that, you know, involved sort of a, a purified receptor system could be, you know, a, a better way to look at that or to maybe develop an assay with the deep pocket inhibitor. Um, where that was, you know, labeled, and then one could look for for compounds that that displace that um, could be another way to potentially look at it. So I, I think I think the key is basically to do it not in an unbiased way, but in a way that sort of biases the system towards identifying these specific inhibitors that act in the specific way. I love it. I love it. This is awesome. This is so exciting. So I guess I'll, I'll ask it because because I asked this for from everyone, but I think we've kind of went around and answered the question. Do you think GPCRs are still a good drug target? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, clearly they've evolved to to be druggable, right? I mean, they've they've evolved to bind small molecules um, yeah. and other ligands with high affinity, and so yeah, they're. I mean, they're they're really maybe maybe one of the premier examples of the druggable a druggable molecule. Um, yeah, and actually, on that, on, on, so in that sense, they they really are probably one of the best examples of I think a druggable um, superfamily. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Um, so now that we're heading, let, let's take a step out of of science mm -hmm. and uh, let's go back. I think we we've kind of alluded to this through throughout the entire discussion, where we talked about science, about about your journey, but about the fact that you've always looked outside of the of the conventional toolbox and ask right. questions that were a little bit different and try to apply one type of toolbox to a new, new question. Mm -hmm. What would be your advice to, to junior scientists who aspire to contribute to the field or to, to, to science in general? Yeah, that, okay. That's a good question. So um, I think the first piece of advice I would give is don't be afraid to ask a big question. I think a lot of I, a lot of trainees again sort of feel that like in order to to make a fundamental discovery you have to have like years and years of experience in science and that maybe doing things like that is something that like a beginning graduate student you know or even an undergraduate you know is just out out of out of their realm but like we talked about before you know I think you know asking a big question um, you know making a, an important discovery is something that really is within reach for for any of us in principle right. Um, if, if you're in the right, if you're asking the right question, right? 
And so I think that's really critical. And, and you know, part, part of doing that as a, as a young scientist is that you often, I mean, you need a mentor to really help to guide you to like, how do you identify a good question and how do you ask it? And, and so I think it, it is really important, you know, to find, uh, you know, a mentor and to find a lab that is doing that kind of science. So, so, so I think that's the first thing is to ask an important question. Um, I think the second thing is that I think it's also important to try to be different and to try to not do exactly the same thing that everybody around you is doing. And, you know, I think part of it is that, you know, as a trainee, I think you have to, you know, you, you shouldn't just be reading, you know, the papers in your field and going to the talks that everybody else is going to. I think you have to try to think, you know, more broadly than that. And so going to, you know, looking at what's going on in other fields, um, going to seminars for people that are not studying your specific question is, is really critical. And, and I think in our case, or in my case, I guess, um, you know, because some, you know, by, by, by really diving into the GPCR, you know, world, right, which is something that people in my, my field weren't doing so much. I mean, it gave me all these new tools and, and ideas that I could, I could run with. And so I, I think, you know, finding your niche like that is, is really, really important to do. And I think, you know, for, especially for people that are thinking about like if they're postdocs potentially looking to, to, to establish their own labs, you know, having a, having a way that you're doing something that's different um, from everything else that's going on is something that will really help with that process because it kind of helps to, you know, explain to people like what is, you know, what is your lab and how does it fit into things and that you're not you know necessarily just doing the same thing that many, many other labs are doing. Um, and then I think the last piece of advice is to really try to think, it's really important to think long-term and remember that science is very much a long game. So, um, you know, as a postdoc, you know, I think I kind of recognized that I needed to um, establish some new tools and approaches to study these questions that interested me. And, and um, you know, that it took a while, right? I mean, it took a while to kind of get all these ideas and all these tools in place. Um, I think there's a lot of emphasis now on trying to be really fast and like really efficient with your training. Um, and so, the, you know, the K99 grant for postdocs is one example of that. And, you know, the intentions for those kinds of things are really good. I mean, they're in the right place because I think that people should be able to become independent, you know, sooner rather than later. But I worry a little bit about that, th those kinds of things, because I think that they encourage people to think in a very short-term way. You know, you have to kind of have a paper within the first you know, couple of years of your postdoc to be competitive for those grants. And so in a lot of ways, then that's already going to start to influence your thinking about what kinds of projects you pick up and what kinds of things you do. And, and I have to say that I think, um, you know, I definitely did not set any land speed records during my postdoc by, by any means. Um, but, you know, right now, I think our lab is really kind of reaping the benefits of a lot of the time that I that, that we put in earlier on this stuff because I was in a, you know, in, in labs that were really supportive of me taking time to, to do these things. So I, I think it's really important to think long-term and, to, and to, to, to think about kind of where you want your research to be, not just like a year from now, but like several years yeah. down the road. I yeah. love that. And, and I think, I think there, is, there is a double-edged sword there when you talk about, you know, speed and getting data as soon as possible and then trying to really take your time and explore yeah. and become an expert at your own topic. You mentioned um, your, your undergraduate student who joined the lab and you, you said that he didn't know how to pipette to begin with. And I think that's yeah. 
we have to go through that. We have to go through that training mm -hmm. where we get to a point where you not only, you can do the experiments with like that, and then yeah. you have that mental space to ask more broad and scientific questions and important questions. Yeah, not, not everything in science is about efficiency, I think. And, and that, that was definitely something that I learned from, from being in, in David's lab and Phil's lab, for example, is that, um, you know, they knew that, you know, make, make, making a, an, impact, an impactful discovery is not necessarily something that you're going to be able to do in a, a short amount of time. You have, you have to, as you said, you have to spend some time exploring and, and in a lot of ways, like figuring out what planet you're on. You know, in order yeah. to, 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 you know, what, like, exactly. you know, to, to be able to figure out like what, what is really at the, at the heart of this problem and how do I get it? it? It just, it takes a long time. It's not something that you can just sort of do very, very quickly. So uh, it's, it's a marathon. It's definitely a marathon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think one, one key, one key component and one key in, important thing that you mentioned is really um, taking the time to talk to other scientists, to, to, yeah. you know, bounce off ideas. And I know from experience that being an undergrad or a graduate student, or even a postdoc, sometimes you're just afraid to say out loud what your ideas are, but yeah. you shouldn't. Abs that, that's absolutely true. And I think an another thing is that I think in order to come up with a good idea, you actually have to go through like a, a very large number of, of bad ideas. Right. And, and, yeah. and just to even be able to recognize like, Oh, that's something that has potential um, versus, Oh, that's something that's probably not going to work. I mean, you have to like, go through that. And so I, I definitely came up with lots and lots and lots of, of you know, kind of wacky ideas that we, we fortunately discarded um, along yeah. the way, but you have, that is very much a part of the process. And if you've yeah. heard uh, Bob Lefkowitz's episode, and I think he was mentioning that every year at the end of the year between, you know, Christmas and New Year's, he sits in his office and he makes a list of all of the things he wanted to do. And then mm -hmm. if he gets through 20%, of, of those things. I can't remember if it was 20% of the list or the success rate would be 20% and he'd be very satisfied with that uh, success rate. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think, I, I think definitely in, in my postdoc, I don't think I was getting close to 20%. I think it was quite a bit lower <laughs> than that, um, which was a little scary at, at, at some points, but I, I totally agree with that. I think that's, that, that is, it, it is really important to, to, that people know that, that you know, when, you're, when you're doing um, stuff that's out of the box, especially, it's going to take time and yeah. you just have to expect that like, there's going to be a low return phase in it. And yeah. you know, there's, there's, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, a period of time where things aren't working. And, and I really feel like that to me is by far the hardest part of being a scientist is knowing how to get through those periods. And so you can get to the point where you finally make a discovery because you have no idea how long that low return phase is going to be. It could be a month. Yeah. It could be a year, it could be 10 years. Um, but you know, the, the nice thing about being a scientist though, is that it isn't just about raw brain power. You know, it's also about experience, you know, it's a craft as much as it yeah. is a, um, is. sort of an intellectual discipline. And so it's with, with, with more experience, right. You get to know what the pace of a project is like, and then you get to, I think I've, you know, with more experience, I think I've learned when I'm really making progress on something, even if it doesn't look like I am, um, versus when I'm spinning my wheels. So yeah. that, that's, that's all the part of this that I think comes with, with more experience. I think so too. And it's an art as well. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's uh, so, some, some way we're all artists at our own craft, our own levels. And I think you get more experience and you might get more confidence by doing it. Over time. That is absolutely true. Absolutely.
All right, yeah. which gets me to my next question. Speaking of art and you know uh, experience and confidence, what would be the top three or even less or more mm -hmm. uh, aha moments that you had as a scientist that shaped your trajectory? I think we touched upon it a little bit, but we, let's, we, uh, we let's did, yeah, um, yeah. Just to recap, I think um, so. I think the first discovery was probably the, the discovery about cholesterol activating smooth in vitro, and the way that that I think really you know told us told me a lot about you know what how, how pivotal cholesterol was in this. In, in smooth and activation. I think that was definitely an aha moment. And maybe along with that was also, um, you know, the first, uh, you know, the first inkling with, with the Shisha's lab of how cholesterol really bound. And the, you know, that, I think that I actually remember that as well, because I had gone, um, I remember I had, I, I was in, uh, I was in the Bay area at, and I, I had gone, I actually had gone down to the Bay area for the day. Um, and I had, hadn't brought my phone with me. Um, and then when I got back, uh, got back home, this is, um, I, I basically my, my phone had like totally blown up because we had, you know, we'd made the, as you should have figured out that the cholesterol was in the structure and where it bound, and it was really exciting. So, so that was definitely like a big aha moment was, I think, I guess the combination of knowing that cholesterol was critical and figuring out how it worked. I mean, that was one thing. I think the other, another aha moment was, um, this first discovery that, that PKA catalytic subunit bound directly to smoothen. I mean, that totally blew my mind. Um, and that was also super exciting. We talked about that a bit. And then I think lastly was this idea that smoothen has got this, this decoy inhibitor motif embedded in its tail that it uses to physically block PKA and how wild that was. I mean, that was a huge aha moment for me as well. So um, I think those are the top three. And, and, and I think one, one thing to add to that is that, And maybe this is also useful for some of the trainees in the audience, or, or, or maybe also for the people that are going to become PIs. You don't actually have to be a PI, do the work yourself to have that aha moment. And so I think that's one of the most rewarding things for me as a PI that I didn't realize starting this was that if one of your trainees makes a big discovery, it's actually, you know, you, you feel some of that too. You know, even though you weren't doing the pipetting and you weren't like the, the person that really saw it for the first time, you know, the fact that you're involved with it. You know, it really gives almost almost that same dopamine hit that you get um, from making a discovery, and so that that's actually been a lot of fun, you know, for for me to learn as a PI. I think that's even more potentiated because, um, you know, it's it's your student or your undergraduate or graduate student, and absolutely, you've you've created that environment for that person for that budding scientist mm -hmm. to make that discovery. So I think that the yeah. Uh, The dopamine hit is double as one for the scientific discovery. The second would be for, for you actually being responsible for another scientist's career. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And, and I, I think that was something that I definitely didn't realize as a trainee, but like the sort of excitement that comes from making a discovery is actually something that you could sort of divide up among many different people involved. And it's still just as almost as exciting, I think, as, as, uh, yeah. as if you did all of it yourself. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Yeah. Last question. And I ask this from everyone again, I have, we have these uh, go-to questions. Uh, where can people find you? And if you have job openings, um, where can people uh, reach out to you? To yeah. Um, so um, we have a website, myerslab.org. Um, we also have a Twitter account um, that I, I try to keep updated pretty regularly. And we are recruiting people right now. And, and actually uh, I would love um, to bring in, you know, some more people in my lab, especially people that have GPCR backgrounds because I think a lot of the thinking and a lot of the approaches, um, you know, from, uh, you know, from, from, from the GPCR world are, are really the kinds of things that we're doing in the lab right now. And so mm -hmm. I think, 
you know, people that are maybe finishing up, you know, their graduate work and that want to be able to take some of what they've learned about GPCRs, but take it in a new direction and to think about, you know, how does it influence tissue and organ development and how does it influence cancer? You know, we would love to have to hear from people from, from people like that. And so, you know, we have a job opening uh, posted right now on my, my Twitter account and also on Job Archive. And I think I sent it to, to GPCR, Dr. GPCR last night. So maybe it will get up at some point yes. as well. Yes, um, it will. But we'll yeah, do our best. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, so we, we, would, we would definitely love to hear from, from, uh, from people that are, that are interested in that. And so definitely feel free to reach out um, through any of those, um, th- th- those, uh, those sources if, if you want to learn more. That's fantastic. What I want to add is this. Yes, we do have a career page. We do our best to um, place, uh, you know, put up those ads. We will soon, hopefully we'll have a little bit more time, but we will soon start advertising those more on Twitter to make it more accessible for people. But uh, if you ever have a job description that you want us to put on the career page, happy to do it, tweet it, tag us, and uh, we'll be happy to to retweet the, uh, the job descriptions as well. And one last thing I wanted to mention, and I think I forgot, but anyway, I invite you also, I know you're giving a live talk at the Dr. GPCR Summit. Yes. So I invite you to talk, to talk about, you know, your lab and as well as the positions that you have at the summit. We expect to have a lot of trainees and a lot of people come and join us for your talk. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you very much. Of course. So thank you so much, Ben, for your time. I loved learning more about Smoothint and the cholesterol part blows my mind. And I think even the PKA binding, uh, you know, to, in, to inhibit PKA, just, just mind blowing uh, discoveries. Yeah, definitely. And now, now you can see what I meant when I said that I've, I've learned so much biology from Smoothend. It's really changed the way that I think about GPCRs um, and all these basic concepts that I thought I, I understood before. So I'm, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it too. I did. I did. I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Ben, for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Dr. GPCR podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, Ines Pinero, and Alexa Juran. We look forward to seeing you live at the next Dr. GPCR virtual cafe. Visit drgpcr.com slash virtual dash cafe for more information. Also, please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter today. You can also find us on YouTube. And if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Also, email us with any questions and suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.